join me tonight in one of the Psalms, Psalm 51. A famous Psalm of David. And we'll just read it together in a moment. I'll let you find it first. The title of this psalm in my Bible is the Psalm of Repentance. And the introduction uh, says, To the chief musician, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So you're all very familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. And this is the outcome uh, whenever he was confronted by the prophet. And so he writes and he says, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. I want to speak to you tonight about one of the most difficult things that I think that Christians often wrestle with. A lot of facts, everybody. The Christian, I believe, would feed it much more acutely. Something that we battle with Secretly, drains our strength, saps our confidence, robs us of our joy, steals our peace, heart, peace of mind, diminishes our faith. What I'm talking about is guilt. Guilt. That horrible, dark, finger-pointing, self-accusing, merciless guilt. Guilt can produce self-loathing. Guilt can produce feelings of absolute worthlessness. It's a horrible, 
horrible thing. Now Christians, I think especially, are very susceptible to guilt. Why, you may ask? Well, we want to do what's right. We want to do the right thing and act in the right way and think the right thing and speak the right thing. We desperately want to please God. We want to glorify the Lord and anything short of that can, if we're not careful, can put us on the treadmill of guilt. Now the real difficulty we face with guilt and our enemy exploits this. The real difficulty is that if I put it this way, that all guilt is not necessarily bad for us and all guilt is not necessarily good for us. So there can be a guilt that's good and there can be a guilt that's bad. Guilt can be a great servant, but it can be a terrible hard master. Knowing when guilt is good for us and knowing when it's bad for us can make all the difference in how we handle it. title of this message tonight is How to Handle Guilt because we're all going to feel it. We're all going to experience it. We all have experienced it and we all yet will experience it. So we need to know the difference between good guilt and bad guilt and how to handle it because if we don't, the enemy can come in and he can exploit it against us. What's good guilt? Well, good guilt leads to repentance. Good guilt leads to restoration, forgiveness, maybe even restitution if it has to be made. And so there is a, a good guilt that can cause us to do the right thing and can cause us to, uh, to behave in the right way that can bring us out of, of a feeling of despair and worthlessness and shame and all the rest of it and put us on the right path. But then there's bad guilt. And bad guilt leads to self-condemnation and, and self-punishment. And if we don't deal with it, it can go on and sometimes has in people's lives where it's led to self-destruction. They just could not live with the feeling of guilt. So there's a good guilt and a bad guilt. There's a guilt that leads to repentance and there's a guilt that can lead to condemnation, self-condemnation. Now what can cause our guilt? Well, first of all, a failure to reconcile in our hearts what we justify with our head. A failure to reconcile in our heart what we justify with our head. We can't reconcile inwardly what we justify outwardly. Another way of putting it. Or we can't reconcile with ourselves what we justify to others. So there's this wrestling going on within our heart, between the heart and the head. And even though inside we can't reconcile it, but outside we put on an appearance and a show and a facade. But inside, it's gnawing away at us. The story of David and Bathsheba, and this is a great prayer, prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. This is one of David's penitential psalms. 
Seven of them. This is one of them. And then there's other Psalms, uh, like, like Psalm 32 and Psalm 38. Uh, you know, if you're going to read Psalm 51, you should read those other two Psalms because they're all tie in together of what he was feeling, what he was going through in the year between when he sinned with Bathsheba to when the prophet Nathan came and confronted him. It was almost a full year. And those three Psalms tell you what he went through, how he felt, what was going on in his heart and in his mind. Uh, and and it's, it's tremendous when you read to see the wrestling that was going on uh, and how he was suppressing it and trying to put it down. And it would keep rising up. And he couldn't sleep at night. And he was in turmoil. Uh, you know, but during the day, he would go about his business because he was the king. He would sit on his throne. He would administrate his kingdom. He would give his orders. He'd do all of that during the day. One writer says he was, he was haughty during the day, but he was haunted at night because of what was in his heart. Trying to reconcile what was in his heart with what's going on in his head. Trying to reconcile with others he's dealing with, with what he really knows, what he's really like. And so there's this feeling of a failure to reconcile in our hearts what we justify in our heads. Uh, you remember in, in Matthew 26 uh, with Peter and Jesus, turn with me to Matthew 26, just a second. And towards the end of Matthew 26, in verse 69, it says, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you, because he was a Galilean. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. It's hard to imagine not only the shame that he felt, but the horrendous guilt. Here was the man who said to Jesus in front of all the other disciples, if all they forsake you, I'll not forsake you. I'll even die for you if I have to. Hmm. And in that moment when the rooster crowed, and if you read the other Gospels, when Jesus turned and looked at him, in that moment it hit him. And in an instant he was engulfed with guilt and shame. It must have been absolutely awful for him. Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 you remember how he went out breathing threatenings and slaughter against the church? Got letters from the high priest to go as far as Damascus to arrest believers. This sect of the Nazarenes, those of the way, as they were called in a kind of a 
condescending, nasty way, those of the way, and how he went out and how Christ met him and spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who is it? Lord, I am Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, in that moment, all the horrible things he had done against the church, you know, he never did forget them. That's why he called himself the chiefest of sinners, the least of the apostles. <laughs> never did forget it. Dealt with it, but never did forget it. And the awful guilt he must have felt at that moment. Here he was, out killing, killing the very people that were Christ's people. In Matthew 27, we should have stayed there, just the next chapter where we were there a moment ago. Matthew 27, just the first few verses of Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Couldn't bear the guilt. Couldn't bear the shame. went and hanged himself. Failure to reconcile in our heart what we try to justify with our head. And here was David for a full year struggling, wrestling with all of the guilt, all of it. Can you imagine that every day for a year You'd have to look into the eyes of Bathsheba knowing that he had murdered her husband. Knowing that he was the one responsible for bringing that little child into the world that died. Having to look into the eye of Joab, his top general, that he'd given the orders to to make sure Bathsheba's husband Uriah was put right at the front of the battle so that he would be killed. And every day he had to look at all of them. Had to try to hide his shame and his guilt. And I'm sure, I'm sure they knew. I'm sure the rumor mill was going. And he had to look at his sons, he had to look at his servants, he had to look at his soldiers. He had to look at Ahithophel, who was Bathsheba's grandfather, who was his closest friend at that time, knowing what he had done. And here he is, sitting on his throne, pretending as if it never happened. And yet all the time he knows in his heart. And the guilt's there. 
And he goes to bed at night. He can't sleep. He tosses. He turns. But he can't sleep. Stomach is churning. I don't know whether it gave him ulcers or not. Probably did. What a horrible, terrible year he had in his life because of that. And so a failure to reconcile in our hearts will be justified with our head. And then secondly, temptation. Same we're talking about temptation here. But I'm not talking here now when I say temptation about us giving into it the way David did. Nothing has actually taken place. You haven't succumbed. You didn't yield. You haven't fallen. You thought about it. Almost nearly came very, very close to caving in. But you didn't. But nevertheless, now you feel ashamed and guilty that you almost blew it. You came so close to blowing it. And instead of being grateful that you escaped, you can't stop feeling guilty that your weakness was so strong that it almost succeeded. See, if the enemy of your soul can't get you to yield to the temptation, and even if you overcome it, he's going to try to make you feel so guilty that you even thought about it in the first place. That you came close to giving in. And many a person struggles with that. Because they never thought it would ever be like that. They never thought that they would actually think that way. Toy with that idea. Be tempted that way. But they were. And I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about good people. I'm talking about people who love the Lord. And yet they struggle with that. And even though they overcame, but the very thought of almost losing it haunts them. So there's all kinds of reasons for for guilt. And then there's what I would call perfectionism. There's lots of people who are perfectionists. Everything has to be absolutely just spot on. You go into their home and everything's got its place, has to be in its place. There's all kinds of names for that thing now, what they call it. Some of you are smiling, you're probably like that. Thankfully, I'm not. I'm free from that. (laughs) Glory to God. It's wonderful. (laughs) It's great. But if you're like that, it's tough, isn't it? Especially you go into somebody else's house, you want to rearrange their furniture, you want to fix their ornaments, you want to come into my office, you want to fix all my books. (laughs) But the trouble is a perfectionism that can lead to legalism. Where we say, what do you mean by that? I mean that nothing you ever do spiritually is ever enough. That's the feeling. It's never enough or it's never good enough. It's never enough and it's never good enough. And even if you did enough, it still wouldn't be good enough. So there's never any satisfaction in it. You know, take like prayer or, or, your, or your devotions. 
where it's never enough. And even if you, if you, even if you, you do better, and even if you had a, a wonderful time of prayer and a wonderful devotion, it's that nagging thought, it's not good enough. I, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not like other people and I'm not like so-and-so and, you know, they're wonderful prayers and, you know, they read reams and reams of the Bible and, you know, and they can quote you dozens of scripture and, and I struggle with that. And, 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 and then you get onto this great big massive guilt trip and even if you do well, it's just never going to be good enough. It's never, it's never going to measure up to somebody else that you have in your mind or, or how you feel you should be or want to be. It's the same with witnessing or, or, or whatever it may be. Now, I, I'm not in any way saying that we cannot improve in all of those areas. In fact, we ought to try to improve in them. I'm not advocating laziness or indifference spiritually. I, I'm definitely believe that we should up our game as much as we can, if we can use that term spiritually, do all that we can to pray more, to read more, and to study more. But you need to watch that it doesn't come legalistic in your life where no matter how much you pray, how much you read, how much you witness, how many times you go to church, it's never going to be enough and you're always going to feel guilty that you didn't do more continually because then you lose your joy and you lose your peace. And then no matter how hard you try, it's never going to satisfy. You'll never get any pleasure or enjoyment in seeking after the Lord because it's never, ever going to be enough. I'm trying to get a balance here. Between saying, well, it doesn't really matter then. You just, if I don't read, if I don't pray, it doesn't really matter because the Lord loves me anyway. I'm trying to get almost between that extreme and the other extreme. No matter what you do, you think, well, I'm, not, I'm really still not pleasing the Lord. Uh, I'm really not. And you don't want to get to that position either. It's somewhere in between that we need to be. Because if you get to that extreme, then you lose the joy of the Lord and, and you struggle. And so there's various, there's more which we don't need to go into tonight, but there's more reasons why we can feel guilty. But it, it's separating this the good guilt from the bad guilt. The guilt that will lead to a good ending and the guilt that will lead to condemnation and misery and losing the joy of the Lord and all of that. So what then, David, you may say, what if our guilt is the good kind of guilt, the guilt that does lead to repentance, that does lead to forgiveness, how do we handle that kind of guilt? And that brings us back to the story of David here in Psalm 51. How did he handle it? What did he say? I remember it took almost a year where he completely handled it totally wrong. But God in his mercy, because he loved him, and God will do this with us, God will find a way to confront us, to bring it to our attention. And the trouble is sometimes if we don't deal with things privately, we might have to deal with them publicly. And the trouble was that David didn't deal with it privately. And God waited and waited and waited and waited. Now, there was a high standard set for him because he was the king. And remember, he was a man that was close to God's heart. He was a deeply spiritual man. 
but he had sinned grievously and he tried to hide it. And God was patient and God was merciful. And then after a year, God said, enough is enough. I'm going to confront this man. I'm going to bring him to his knees. He didn't do it the easy way, but he's going to do it the hard way. And so the prophet comes to him. And the prophet gives that little story of the ewe lamb that the rich man took from somebody else's flock to feed the passing guest. And David, being a shepherd, was absolutely livid because that struck a chord in his heart. Not realizing that God was speaking about him. And of course he threatened to deal with this horrible man that would steal somebody else's you lamb. And Nathan says, you're the man. It's you. You're the one that stole Uriah's you lamb. <laughs> His only one. And immediately, to his credit, immediately he was broken in heart. And he fell down before the prophet and he poured his heart out. What a relief it must have been hiding that awful sin for a year. And now suddenly it's all coming out. And so how do we deal with guilt? First of all, we've got to be honest with ourselves. Look at verse 3 and verse 6. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. At last, David is holding his hands up and is acknowledging He's acknowledging. He's being honest with himself. And he's been honest with the prophet. And he's been honest with God. You know, sometimes we try to bluff ourselves, don't we? Convince ourselves. But God knows our heart more than we know our hearts. And God's a jealous God. And he's a compassionate, merciful God. And it's because he loves us, he will confront us. So you've got to be honest with yourself. Hold your hands up. If you blew it and you did wrong, hold your hands up before God and say, God, I am sorry. Be honest. Because God already knows. Secondly, accept responsibility. Look what he says, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Now notice this. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse my, me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. See how he got to the place where he wasn't blaming anybody else. He was owning his sin. He was owning it. It's mine. You know, he could have said, and I'm sure in the previous year before this, I'm sure there was times he thought this, he could have said, you know, Bathsheba, you know, Lord, she went out there and had a bath in her balcony, knowing her house is right next to my palace. 
knowing that I go out there every day, walking around the walls of my palace. I mean, how does she expect any man to resist that? I mean, she must have known I'm a man. She must have known I would feel seeing her having a bath in broad daylight. He could have said all of that. He could have blamed Bathsheba. But he didn't. It's my transgression. It's my sin. I did it. There's nobody else to blame. It's me. And once you get to that place, that is true repentance. Not trying to put the blame on somebody else. Not like Eve, the man thou gavest me. That was, that was Adam, wasn't it? The woman thou gavest me. See how quick we are to blame? Eve said it was the serpent. We always want to push the blame on, don't we? But Adam got to the, or Adam, David got to the place where he said, it's me. It's my fault. I take full responsibility. I accept it. But then more than that, verse 4, see God, see God as the offended one. I notice this, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now that's not strictly true, is it? He sinned against Bathsheba as we already stated. He sinned against that little boy that was born and died. He sinned against Joab. He sinned against the Hithophel. He sinned against his whole family. He sinned against the whole nation. So why did he say against you only have I sinned? Because now he fully understands the gravity of his sin. Not only the sin against those people, but in the light of sinning against God, everything else seemed to just melt away. In the light of sinning against our holy God, suddenly confronted with that, I have sinned against my God. And that was the thing that just absolutely engulfed him and flooded his mind and his heart at that moment when the prophet confronted him. Oftentimes, we're the opposite. Oftentimes, when we sin, and whenever we come to repent, we think about those that it did hurt, and we think about ourselves, how we're embarrassed and how we've got ashamed. And the last person we think is God, a holy God that we sinned against. But David was the opposite. When he was finally confronted, he says, God, I'm paraphrasing, I have grievously sinned against you. It doesn't really matter about anybody else, it was against you. You're the holy God of Israel, and I have sinned against you. So, this is how to handle guilt. This is how to deal with it. And then, verse 10 and 11, understand the dangers of unconfessed sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. In fact, we we'll read verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. You see, the dangers of unconfessed sin is you lose your joy. This is the psalmist David. This is the man who played the harp. 
This was the musician, the songwriter, the composer. This is the man that God the Holy Spirit would fill his heart with wonderful songs of praise and worship and adoration. But for this past year, there's none of that. He's lost the joy of the Lord. Even if he goes to the house of God, there's no joy there. There's no peace there. There's just this horrible guilt. He picks up his harp and there's nothing. Can't compose, can't write. Struggling. And you see, this is one of the dangers of unconfessed sin. It's even worse than that, for he says, don't cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, he had seen Saul, King Saul. He had seen King Saul being cast away from God's presence, losing the anointing, losing his kingship, being God's man, and then having that taken away from him, and him getting the anointing. He had seen that. He had seen what happened to Saul when he lost the anointing. He had seen all of that. He had seen how the man was going insane with rage and jealousy and murder in his heart. He had seen all of that. And he says, Lord, I don't want to end up like that. I don't want you to cast me from your presence and end up like Saul. He says, please do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Do you know this is the very first time in all of Scripture that the Spirit of God was given that title, the Holy Spirit? Not interesting. It shows you how David had got to a place where he really offended a holy God and knew it. But for the first time ever, he calls the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit. You know, he's only mentioned twice as the Holy Spirit in all of the Old Testament. Another time is in Isaiah where the prophet's speaking about the nation. And so this is a big thing to him. I don't want to lose your spirit, Lord, your Holy Spirit. Don't want to lose that. Don't cast me away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with your generous spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Understand the dangers of unconfessed sin. And in verse 5, acknowledge, we're almost finished, acknowledge your humanity. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Now, not that we use that as an excuse. <clears throat> David wasn't using it as an excuse. But he was remembering his humanity. And it would be good for us to remember it too. Remember that we were <clears throat> born in sin and shape and in iniquity. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we've got God's Holy Spirit. But who among us can say that we are without sin in this world? Who among us can say that we will never sin? We can't. We can't. So we acknowledge our humanity. In other words, we acknowledge that every single one of us, there's not one of us above this. We may think we are, but we're not. We may think we are, but we're not. One famous British preacher one time, great Baptist preacher, 
was preaching at a convention. He made everybody gasp. Towards the end of his sermon, he was preaching about holiness. He says, you know, five minutes after I stepped from this platform, I could commit any sin known to man. And he gasped. He says, except for the grace of God. Except for the grace of God. I'm just like any other man. And it's good for us to remember that too. Let him who falls, sorry, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. So before we just point the finger, let's remember our humanity. And then finally, desire to be cleansed. In verse 7 it says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What's David referring to here when he talks about hyssop? Well, hyssop was a medicinal plant that grew in walls. And it was used widely in the Old Testament. And it was used particularly for two things. Mainly it was used when it came to the cleansing of the lepers. If a leper felt they were cleansed, they would go to the priest, they had to show themselves to the priest. And the priest had a little ceremony, Leviticus 14, where he had two birds, a live one, one that was killed. And he had scarlet, he had cedar wood, and he had a bunch of hyssop. And he would take that and dip it into the blood of the the bird and he would sprinkle it on the leper as a sign that he was cleansed. So David here is saying, because this is what he was feeling, he was feeling like a leper. Because of his sin, he felt like a leper. And he says, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse me. Cleanse me, Lord, so that I know I'm cleansed. That I'm given a clean bill of health. <laughs> that I'm truly cleansed of this disease of sin that I've committed. You remember in the, the, the Exodus, you remember how that the death angel was to pass over Egypt? And how that God said to those living in Goshen, you know, kill the lamb, put the blood on the bowl. And then when you do that, take it outside your door and take a bunch of hyssop and sprinkle it on the doorpost and on the lentils of your house. So when the death angel comes over, it'll see the blood and it'll pass over and you'll not die. Hyssop was used. So David, in, in his repentance, in his dealing with this guilt, he's saying to the Lord, Lord, sprinkle me with blood. He was way before his time, wasn't he? He was way before his time. What a wonderful picture of the New Testament where the sprinkling of the blood cleanses us. And if we blow it and we come before God with our guilt, we can repent and say, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse me from my sin. Let your sprinkled blood cleanse me from my sin.
And this is what David was saying here. The desire to be cleansed, to be free. What a relief that it was for David that day to be confronted and to accept his sin and own it up and say, Lord, I'm sorry, cleanse me. And to get it dealt with. Let me just read you this in closing. The knife sliced through the man's heart like a razor. Sorry. The knife sliced through the man's shirt like a razor, entering his back at the shoulder, cutting diagonally across the spine. Skin and muscle melted like mutton before a cleaver. The shock paralyzed him, and searing pain tore through his body like currents of fire. He tried to scream, but the knife had punctured a lung. Being withdrawn, it was plunged in again and again. The third plunge was the most cruel, stabbing, carving, nicking spinal cord and puncturing heart. The victim twisted towards his attacker and seeing through anguished eyes the face of his betrayer. Three times the scalpel lacerated the man's chest, scoring the skin, cutting along carefully drawn lines. Its surgical steel grew red, flesh and fat separated. The chest opened, soon the heart was bared. Two knives, one on the hand of a killer, one on the hand of a healer. One cut into the back, the other into the chest. Three stabs for the betrayal, three for the surgery. The surgeon, being healed, was operating on the man who attacked him. This story is found in Luke 22 and John 21. Three times Peter stabbed Jesus in the back. And three times Jesus cut Peter to the heart. The Lord knew that Peter's guilt and his sense of shame were blacker than coal. But he also knew that Peter would never become the bold and brilliant leader of the early church if he spent his days groping in the coal mines of guilt and moping in his mine shafts of shame. And so he told him in effect to get over it, to put it behind him, to renew his love for the master and to get busy feeding the sheep. And that's what the Lord does with us. Whenever we bring our case before him and we say, sorry, Lord. He says, that's okay. I forgive you. Now go on and do my work. David was the man after God's own heart. In spite of his sin, in spite of what he did, yes, there was consequences. The sword never left his house. I know that. But he knew he was forgiven. He knew that God forgave him. And he was able to go on. That's how you deal with guilt. The good kind of guilt. The guilt that leads to repentance, forgiveness, restoration that lets you go on living your life for Christ. Let's pray. I'm just going to take a moment just a moment of quietness and in the moment of quietness this is between you and the Lord
there's something that you need to say to him tonight. There's no better time to do it than tonight. Deal with it. Don't let it fester. Don't try to hide it and deny it. Bring it before the Lord tonight. may not be an awful grievous sin like David, but maybe something that you feel guilty that haunts you. Bring it before the Lord tonight. And in the quietness of your heart, ask him for his forgiveness. For him to cleanse you from it. And give you the strength to go on to live for Jesus every day. So let's just take a moment. Think about that. Then we'll pray. Lord, in the quietness of these moments, we come before the mercy seat, the place where we find help in time of need. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness, thanking you for your mercy. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation, that peace reign in our hearts. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us strength to go on. Thank you for forgiveness and mercy. We're humble, Lord, that you love us that much that you grant us forgiveness and mercy. Thank you, Lord. Lord, let your blood cleanse purges, cleanses. Make us every whit whole. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.